So if we falsify our contract or don't live up to it, just like breaking any other contract, and that's where the government steps in because now we're stealing from other people. Uh And that is where government should have a voice in protecting Uh us from theft of our property, but not to force us to accept any particular kind of money. Right. Yeah, that's quite the the paradox, isn't it? That we want government to protect our property, but government is monopolizing money to violate our property. That's Uh, what always happens with government. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. G. Edward Griffin, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Well, thank you for inviting me, Robert. It's a pleasure. Uh, It's a real honor to have you here. As I was just telling you offline, um, you are the man that inspired me, I think, to originally start investigating the nature of money. I read The Creature from Jekyll Island, the book which you are an author of almost 20 years ago. And I think you definitely planted the seed with me uh, of the question, what is money? You have a subchapter in your book by that very title. So I think first I need to just thank you for writing the book and inspiring my work. Well, thank you very much. You know, as we mentioned just before going on to the recording, when I wrote that book years ago, uh, I had no idea that uh, very many people would read it. I thought, well, this is just for the record. Maybe someday in the future, somebody will want to know what happened. Yeah. But uh, to my amazement, people have read it. And so I'm very grateful 
for you, Robert. And uh, thanks for inviting me because it's it's part of my uh, my dream that we could build some kind of an awareness and a crusade to uh, to purify the system of corrupt banking. So uh, thank you for that. Well, thank you, sir. And I think the crusade is now well underway. Um, seems like in the digital age, people are asking more questions. People are having more peer-to-peer conversations. Truth seems to be coming to the surface more quickly in different domains. Yeah. I think Bitcoin has energized the conversation around money. And um, the scam that is central banking is is definitely having some light thrown on it. So I think that is a good thing. Um, right. I thought we would start today, actually, at the conclusion of your book. Um, many people in my audience are familiar with A Creature from Jekyll Island. They're familiar with central banking. Um, we talk a lot about central banking. We talk a lot about the nature of money. Um, but I wanted to just read some excerpts from the conclusion to your book and then ask you a really broad question about the overall thesis. So at the end of your book, you enumerate seven reasons we should abolish the Federal Reserve System, which are, it is incapable of accomplishing its stated objectives. It is a cartel operating against the public interest. It is the supreme instrument of usury. It generates our most unfair tax. It encourages war. It destabilizes the economy. And it is an instrument of totalitarianism. And as you conclude the book, you write, the creature has grown large and powerful since its conception on Jekyll Island. It now roams across every continent and compels the masses to serve it, feed it, obey it, worship it. If it is not slain, it will become our eternal Lord and master. Can it be slain? Yes, it can. How will it be slain? By piercing it with a million lances of truth. Who will slay it? A million crusaders with determination and courage. Crusade has already begun. So I want to ask you just a very broad question about the book, uh, given that conclusion. What is the creature from Jekyll Island? Why is it malevolent to the core? And what can be done about it? Well, basically, those all three questions were answered to some extent uh, by the list that you just reviewed. Uh-huh. We The core to the answer of what it is is an understanding of what a cartel is. Yeah. A lot of people today think that a cartel is, well, that, that's the, uh, the drug cartel. That's, they associate that word with drug cartel today. And, uh, but of course, the word cartel is a, a long-term legitimate word to describe a grouping of commercial interests, any kind, could be drug, but mostly in the real world, drug cartel is a relatively minor player yeah. compared to banking, for example. It's a conglomeration or grouping of, of, of independent business enterprises which have decided to stop competing with each other and join together and cooperate to sure. control their mutual market to eliminate competition so that um, they can increase their profits and uh, not have to worry about um, competing with newcomers and so forth. Yeah. In other words, to improve their profits and to eliminate the choice of the consumer. Sure. So uh, cartels are logical uh, evolution of business enterprises. As long as government stays out of it, they don't last very long because competition always creeps in and somebody else wants to be the, 
the, um, the chief dog. And so first thing you know, they have another competitor and another one. And finally, you're back to the free market again. But when government steps in, because members of the cartel are very wise in this regard, they spend a tremendous amount of their profit money to buy politicians. Fair. And they buy the politicians who write laws which uh, sound to the public like they're wonderful because they're protecting the people and and uh, assisting the economy and and um, you know improving a standard of living and all that sort of propaganda, but in reality it's just to uh, to prevent the public from having a choice in these matters. And so cartels always get together and they they fix prices and share markets and so forth to the detriment of the consumer. And um, so the Federal Reserve, in answer to the first questions what it is, it's a cartel. It's no different than a banana cartel, mm. a drug cartel, um, an oil cartel. It happens to be a banking cartel. So mm. that's what it is. And if people understood that, and they understood that it is not, not, repeat, not an agency of the federal government. It is a private organization, which is a stunning reality. It certainly was to me most people find that hard to believe. Mm-hmm. But the Federal Reserve is a conglomerate or a cartel of private banks. And these banks were so, or the bankers were so uh, wise in their actions that they, back in 19, or, yeah, 1910, they began the propaganda campaign to draft and create the Federal Reserve. And then in 1913, they actually passed it into law it meaning the Federal Reserve Cartel Agreement. And there's a little history involved there. That's why I call my book The Creature from Jekyll Island is because uh, it's not because Jekyll Island has a creature that comes out of the slimy lagoon or anything like that. It's worse. It's because the Federal Reserve comes out of the, this private, very secret meeting that took place on Jekyll Island, which is a real island off the coast of Georgia back in 1910. Uh, and uh, is made up of representatives of the largest banks in the United States with their connections, their brotherhood, and the big banks in Europe as well. So it was done in secret, private organization of bankers coming together, agreeing not to compete with each other anymore and to form uh, like a, a labor union for for plumbers or something like that. They're going to regulate their economy. So make it cushy for the plumbers that you've got to pay the same rate to all plumbers or they have to charge the same rate and so forth. Right. And so you can't have any plumbers coming in. So well, I can do that cheaper because it's, he gets drummed out of the out of the union if he does that. He's not in the union in the first place. So so they formed this, this banking cartel on Jekyll Island. And uh, that was the beginning of it all. And the, then they took this cartel agreement that they drafted among themselves to benefit themselves in the economy. They took it to Washington and they took three years to convince the congressmen there and the senators that this would be a great opportunity for them to become statesmen and vote for it and stabilize the economy and all that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. When in fact, it was a private cartel agreement. And I don't think many of those congressmen and senators really understood that at the time. They just thought it was a piece of of legislation that They didn't understand, but surely the bankers understood it. And uh, so they just eventually all buckled under and they voted for it into law in 1913. Uh, 
So coming to the conclusion of this long ladder of information is that um, they have a cartel agreement to preserve and expand the power of the banks, a private agreement. They take it to Washington. They convince the, the politicians to pass the private agreement into law called the Federal Reserve Act. Now, a private gre- agreement suddenly becomes law of the land. And so if you and I do not abide by the terms of the private agreement, we can go to prison. But it's not a government creation. It's a private creation. But the government just was stupid enough, these congressmen were idiots enough, to sign it into law to give it the power of the government. So it was a partnership, in another way of looking at it, between the the, uh, politicians, the uh, political scientists, and the monetary scientists. That's what the Federal Reserve is, a cartel and a partnership between the bankers and the politicians. So that probably tells you enough right there if you understand what's going on in the world. But um, the details beyond that are extremely fascinating. So uh, the other parts of your question is what can be, jumping to the end, what can be done about it? I use the, the metaphor of a thousand uh, spears or well, what was the word I used? Knives or something to cut it. A, a million lances of truth. Lances of truth, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but it takes more than truth, uh, Robert. Um, you know, there's an old saying, which I used to uh, use a lot, and then I began to realize that it was a bunch of bunk. The old saying is that truth will ultimately prevail if enough uh, energy is spent to bring it to light. And that's not true, because sure. truth by itself has a great deal of power. But if men are cowardly to stick to the truth, it fails. So it right. takes courage besides truth. It takes um, manly action. It takes, it takes a strong stance. It takes organization. It takes, it takes the acquisition of political power because you're fighting political power. And truth by itself is not strong enough. Um, you have to take that truth and convert it into action and this is something that took me a long time to realize over the years that we've had the truth. We've been people like me long before me have been yelling the truth, screaming it from the from the housetops. But nobody heard it because it was banned in a way. It was not popular. So most people, including myself, never heard the truth. You've got to hear the truth. No. And then and then we see today people know a lot of truth, but they're afraid to act on it. I'll, I'll just take a moment and say, take a look at what's happening in our health field right now with this this, this thing, this non-truth called COVID. The official story of that is so, so different than what most people think. Right. And uh, if anybody stands up and says, but wait a minute, that's not true. And they want to tell the truth. They're banned from the internet and so yeah. forth. So the truth by itself is, is powerless. Well, not powerless, but it's not enough. It's not the complete yeah. story. So we get back to the question of what can be done about it. Not only do we have to write books about it, not only do we have to talk about it and hold lectures on it and and, and send emails on it and, and hold meetings and so forth like that, right. we have to require and, and re, reacquire, I should say, the political power, the influence over writing the laws. First, the thing that has to be done is to 
is to abolish the Federal Reserve System because that's the instrument of this, this monster. As long as that is astride and as long as it has the power over our economy, the power of, of issuing our money, and we can't do anything about it except complain, it's like being in a prison. We're all prisoners. And uh, we can get together and complain all we want to about the food. And we have the truth that the food is lousy. Oh, the truth is out there. The food is lousy. <laughs> the guards are cruel. They, they take all the good stuff and take it home and we, we get the garbage. It's the truth. Everybody knows the truth. But we're still prisoners because they've got the guns and we're behind the bars. So that's the reality that we face today. People know the truth increasingly, but it's not enough. We have to get out of the prison. Wow. That's uh, brilliantly said. Um, also talk about truth a lot on this show, but that's a, a great point that it needs to be acted upon. Otherwise, it's just not worth Yeah. It's worthless if it's not acted upon. Basically, it's not enough to know. Yeah, it's, it's not really worthless, but it's pretty close to it because yeah. uh, the truth is easy to overcome if people are afraid to step up and speak it. Right. Pretend like they uh, like they don't know it. Uh, some years ago, I did an interview with um, a KGB defector by the name of Yuri Bezmenov, and um, he defected from the Soviet Union, and. Uh, at great risk to his life, by the way. And we had a, I had a chance to catch him when he was in the United States for a little while. And I interviewed him and I asked him, actually not on camera, I wish I had, but off the record, we were having lunch or something. And I said, I said, Yuri, to, to the people in this, this was back in the, in the day of the Soviet Union. And it was you know, really full-blown communism in Russia. I said, to the people living there in the Soviet Union today, did they really believe all this nonsense about Marxism, Leninism, and, you know, the people's uh, um, this and the people's that, and evil capitalism, and Marxism, and socialism being the ideal, when they can see it's not working. I said, do they really believe that? And he said, of course not. But they pretend to. Because, first of all, if they don't, they're in deep, deep trouble. And secondly, it's easier. And they can usually get a little better living by pretending then if they spoke the truth they would be they would be cut off from their food their, their they wouldn't have their food coupons they wouldn't have a place to live they'd have be downgraded in their job and they would just not be able to live very well so everybody's afraid to speak the truth i often thought about that because increasingly in the rest of the world and increasingly here in the united states we are now living under the soviet system that he was talking about man yeah, it's well said that lying is often a, a path of least resistance, yeah, and that's yeah. that's another aspect of truth is that it's it's hard, right? Um, it's hard when you're in the minority. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, what what is that saying that a, a lie can make its way around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes? <laughs> you know, the 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 lying seems to be a, an expeditious thing, but it always leads to catastrophic consequences. Yeah. And um, the Soviet Union's an interesting one because they were they were living a lie, as you just described. Literally. There was another saying that was popular there that because uh, the money was so broken, Soviets said something like, "They pretend to pay us, and we pretend to work." You know, the incentives right. were so uh -huh. broken inside of communism that it wasn't yeah. even an economy; it was actually a diseconomy. Like the yeah, the, it was all the, theater. Yeah, was doing what they were expected to do and said what they were expected to say, and they kept everything else secret. Yes. 
to their inner thoughts, afraid in many cases even to talk to their to their close loved ones and their family because they never knew who was going to betray them. Yes. And I think it's worth mentioning here too that um, central banking is basically monetary Marxism, right? This was uh, measure number five in Marx's manifesto to the Communist Party in 1848. He called, he demanded um, the need for a central bank basically to implement Marxism. So there's there's deep connections between these false ideologies and and central banking itself. Um, so back to what you were saying earlier. So cartels, groups of competitors that come together that decide to stop competing with one another for their collective benefit, right? So they can move towards an oligopoly or monopoly, perhaps charge higher prices, deliver lower quality services. Um, but that doesn't work in a free market because, as you said. In a cartel, there are incentives to defect, right? If everyone's price fixing, well, then I have an incentive to go and charge a lower price and therefore get more market share. So it, it the cartel needs some kind of government intervention or violent intervention to persist. It does, yeah, to, to preserve it because otherwise there'll be mavericks that will break away. Yes. Yeah. So cartels always seek legislation to support their, their our, our cartel agreement to make it sound good so the gum-chewing public won't know any better. They say, oh, yeah, well, that's good. You know, like we have a new law that uh, that pr- fixes the price of milk Man. so that everyone can afford milk. Mm-hmm. And we need milk for little babies. And so we need we need the government to fix the law mm-hmm. to guarantee that we, everybody can, av- I mean, the prices so that everybody can afford milk. Well, that's mm-hmm. the way it's sold. But it turns out the other way around that the law make sure that the milk producers can't reduce the price of their milk lower than a certain level. Mm-hmm. That's what the law actually does, but the, the people don't know it. And so all the, the dairies are required to charge at least this amount and that amount for their milk, even exactly. though they w- would be prepared to go lower in a competitive market. So it's all a lie. Excellently said. And then also something that's important here, I think the American Revolution was largely an escape from the Bank of England, right, to a large extent. So we were trying to get out from under the Central Bank of England at the time. The U.S. was founded as a constitutional republic without a central bank, where this decentralized governance model that did not have a central bank had no uh, anticipation of having a central bank. And the Federal Reserve was actually the third attempt, right? They, They had tried to implement a central bank twice before. I think they had one temporary central bank during uh, maybe it was the the um, uh, Civil War, uh, the American Civil War. I think we had a bank for a, a span of 25 years, and Andrew Jackson didn't renew it. I might be wrong on my history there. Well, but, yeah, Andrew Jackson was slayed the 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 bank, the central bank at that time. Yeah, that yes. was a big big event in history. Yes, and and so I guess part of this narrative, right, that we. The U.S. was set up to be without a central bank. It resisted the implementation of a central bank twice successfully. On the third attempt, we got the creature from Jekyll Island. So part of these, this first step toward successfully implementing the U.S. central bank or the Federal Reserve System, as you write in your book, was to scramble the public's understanding of the nature of money itself. And so if you don't mind, I'll read a, a brief excerpt here. And this is from the subsection in your book titled, What is Money? And you wrote that the first step to this maneuver was to scramble the definition of money itself. For example, the July 20th, 1975 issue of the New York Times 
in an article entitled Money Supply, A Growing Muddle, begins with a question, what is money nowadays? The Wall Street Journal of August 29, 1975 comments, the men and women involved in this arcane exercise of watching the money supply aren't exactly sure what the money supply consists of. And in its September 24, 1971 issue, the same paper said a pro-international monetary fund seminar of eminent economists couldn't agree on what money is or how banks create it. Even the government cannot define money. Some years ago, Mr. A.F. Davis mailed a $10 Federal Reserve note to the Treasury Department. In his letter of transmittal, he called attention to the inscription on the bill which said that it was redeemable and lawful money, and then requested that such money be sent to him. In reply, the Treasury merely sent two $5 bills from a different printing series bearing, the similar, bearing a similar promise to pay Mr. Davis to pay. Mr. Davis responded, Dear Sir, receipt is hereby acknowledged of two $5 U.S. States notes, United States notes, which we interpret from your letter are to be considered as lawful money. Are we to infer from this that the Federal Reserve notes are not lawful money? I am enclosing one of the $5 notes, which you sent to me. I note that it states on the face, the United States of America will pay to he, the bearer on demand, $5. I am hereby demanding $5. One week later, Mr. Davis received the following reply from acting treasurer, treasurer M.E. Slendy. Dear Mr. Davis, receipt is acknowledged of your letter of December 23rd transmitting one $5 bill. United States note with a demand for payment of $5. You are advised that the term lawful money has not been defined in federal legislation. The term lawful currency no longer has such special significance. The $5 United States note which received with your letter of December 23rd is returned herewith. The phrases will pay to the bearer on demand and is redeemable and lawful money were deleted from our currency altogether in 1964. So what can we just talk about that little exchange? And then maybe you could go into the differences as you do in your book between commodity money, receipt money, fiat money, and fractional money. Yeah, that's so fundamental. And I'm glad that you picked up on that, uh, Robert, because that's the reason I, I put that section in the book because unless people had a understanding of what money is it's all the rest is just hopeless uh-huh. uh, we're talking about something we haven't defined the topic yet and um, interestingly enough even though there's a, a great void of understanding of what money is it's not complicated really it's pretty simple no. and um, as i went back over the historic records back all the way back to the beginning of the founding of the United States, it was pretty clear to me that people in those days had no trouble understanding what money was. Uh-huh. Everybody understood what it was, and they used it. And it didn't come from the government in many cases. In fact, the word dollar comes from, I think it's the Dutch word, thaler, because it was a piece of private, it was private money issued by a fellow by the name of Thaler. And uh-huh. he just said, hey, guys, I, I can make these little round nuggets of gold and stamp them and they're they're I guarantee you they got this very pure gold in them and sure enough everybody who tested them said these thalers are really what they say they are sure. and it didn't take a government to endorse them the mm-hmm. word went around and people all over the world were 
say, hey, do you have any thalers? I'd rather be paid in a thaler mm-hmm. because they had confidence that its purity in gold was reliable. And so thalers were greatly used in the United States. When it came time to put a word to the American currency, they just took the word thaler and said, "That's good. we're going to use that. Mm-hmm. We're going to use that temporarily in the beginning. And we've, we identified that as our currency. So thaler became the dollar. And so even the origin of the United States dollar comes from a private mint. So the idea, and people understood this, is that you could use anything as money so long as the, the person with whom you're dealing agreed with you that it was something of value. Right. So now we get into the question, well, why did certain things end up being accepted by the populations without laws requiring them to do it? Why did they voluntarily all eventually agree that this is what we will use as our preferred money supply? And now we get into some very interesting stuff. What is the nature of money? What should it be? What is the difference between good money and weak money or bad money? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where it gets really interesting. And as I said before, not too complicated. I, I think a, a grade school or a high school kid for sure could understand the principles. So back to the question, what is money? The dictionaries have little different definitions depending on which dictionary you use, but they all sort of agree on the concept, the central idea, which is that money is a medium of exchange. Now, the active word there is medium. It's, mm. it's not the exchange. It's not the goods or the service that you exchange. If you, do, if you exchange goods or services directly between one person and another, like I'm going to trade my, uh, my Model T Ford for your grand piano or something like that, mm. that's called barter. That's a direct exchange. But if you have an intermediary, it's like, well, I've got the grand piano and, uh, and you, want, you want my uh, piano, uh, but you don't have anything. I really want a Model T Ford uh, as a collector. And you say, well, I don't have a Model T Ford and so forth. Well, what have you got that I could maybe give to somebody that does have a Model T Ford? I said, well, I've got this block of gold here. It's, in fact, I got $27 here. Is that of mm-hmm. interest to you? Oh, yeah, that's of interest because I've, the guy that owns the, the Model T Ford will probably take the Thalers because he knows that he can pass them to almost anybody else. So all of a sudden, the Thaler or the gold pieces or buckets of wheat or jars of jelly or something, um, uh, Disneyland ride coupons or whatever people say, oh, yeah, I can use this for some. I know people who take this. It's a medium of exchange, not uh-huh. the direct exchange. So it's a very simple concept. You don't have to give the other person exactly what they want, but you have something that they will take because uh-huh. they can pass it along to somebody that has exactly what they want. Uh-huh. So that's that simple. So what is the medium of exchange? It, over, over centuries, millennia actually, uh, all acceptable medium or media, media of exchange that have come into popular use have had to have one, well, actually several qualities to them, but the one that most people don't like to talk about is that it has to have intrinsic value for something other than money. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's, it's not gonna last historically. Mm-hmm. If it has no value for anything other than money, then what if you got enough money? 
you know? I don't want that. It's just paper. Or who knows? There might be a war come along, or the power might go out, and nobody will be able to use this stuff anyway. Right. So you know, it has to be fungible. It has to, you know, it, heck, it can't decay and all these things. Mm. It has to be rare. There are a lot of qualities that are assigned to it. Not all money of the ages has had all of those qualities, but the ones that have had all of those qualities are the ones that have survived the longest and been most useful and has not harmed anybody, has been beneficial. And the the items that always wind up as being used and meeting all the requirements of good money are um, metals, uh, precious metals. It doesn't make any difference where you look in what continent, what age, uh, what culture, uh, where there's been a long enough time for people to experiment with different forms of money, always it evolves. Well, I shouldn't say always. There are a few exceptions in, in the in the um, in the islands and so forth. Um, yeah. The anyway, in in all the major continents and all the major civilizations, it always evolved into gold and silver. Not yeah. because somebody said, you will take gold and silver. We, we are hereby writing a law that gold and silver are going to be our money. It's because people chose it by popular demand and experience. Right. So that's really the bottom line lesson of all of this, is that money is a medium of exchange and that to be good money, it should be something of intrinsic value for something other than money. And the yeah. reason for that, as I think it's important to explore, is because something of intrinsic value for something other than money means that it takes human effort Better. to produce, just like what you're exchanging it for. Right. Goods or services take human effort. If you exchange a piece of paper that takes no effort except to run it through a printing press, and you exchange it for the Model T Ford, uh-huh. uh, it was a bad, a bad exchange because here's something that took human effort on one side yes. and took nothing but political resolve on the other side. Somebody's going to get cheated on this yes. deal in the long term. So that in a nutshell, you could actually talk for days about the importance of all those other elements of what is a good money and so forth. But uh, you always come back to the understanding that something of intrinsic value. Now, that's something that people don't like to talk about today who are really uh, deeply into cryptos, cryptocurrencies or digital right. currencies, because they do not, well, they'll argue that it has intrinsic value because people accept it and you can use it for certain accounting transactions that you can't do well with other forms. But I'm not talking about that. That's that's not the definition of intrinsic value that takes human effort to produce. Yeah. So um, it's, a, it's a question that, that even brings into question how, how really valuable the, the digital currencies are that we're talking about. Uh-huh. Because there, it, it just takes political will. It just takes a group of politicians raising their hands, say, I vote for this. And then that money comes into creation. And uh, you expect that to compete on an even scale uh-huh. with something that takes human effort to produce? It's a dream. It won't happen. It won't, it won't persevere over time. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. 
NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's really a a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. So, yeah. Now, if you want to go into the history of it, I'll try and make that very, very simple. In the beginning, the natural money was um, those things of intrinsic value. The, in the very beginning, I believe, as discovered in those the clay tablets they found and when they were digging through the, the ancient civilizations in Nineveh and so forth, they came across this, this huge storehouse of clay tablets underneath some temple. That ah, here's the history of the, pre, of the prehistory, historic world. We're going to find out what already happened. Well, it turned out that most of them were... Um, Accounting records of jars of wheat. <laughs> Ahab gets seven jars of wheat when, anytime he wants it, and we're storing it and so forth. And uh, that's what most of those records were. There were some very interesting historic records too, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the world's first true story. In it. And that's where you find the story of Noah's Ark, actually written thousands of years before the Bible and so right. forth. It's the origin of the story of Noah's Ark. But the point really is that all of these, most of these these historic records were jars of wheat. So that was what they were using as money in the very beginning. Right. If you had wheat, excess wheat, put it in a jar, and boy, you, anybody would take it in right. exchange for their services or something else that they had. And then later on, um, they would exchange cattle and other livestock. Uh, in fact, the word pecunia, because we wow. use it in our language today, a pecuniary uh, transaction means a monetary transaction. And I'm told that the origin of that word, pecunia, is Latin for cow. Uh-huh. So pecuni- a pecuniary transaction is a transaction using cows as something of intrinsic value. Uh-huh. And then finally, the development of metals came along. And that, now that was really of intrinsic value uh-huh. because you needed metals like iron and eventually steel for weapons. Now, there's nothing more vital in a primitive society than a weapon to defend yourself. 
And if uh, you have a, a more aggressive mind, a weapon to steal your neighbor's stuff. Uh-huh. And a weapon to for a sword, and I mean, uh, metal for a sword, and metal for a shield to protect yourself against the other guy's sword. And finally, you know, metal for guns and uh, off and running. So metal made its debut as the first uh, deviation of money away from livestock and, and living things. And finally, the development of precious metals introduced an element of, of scarcity, which is a very important ingredient of good money. Mm-hmm. Whereas it turned out that eventually iron and copper were not so scarce after all, uh-huh. after the refinement techniques were improved. So there's the history of it. You go from one item of intrinsic value to another and end up with precious metals. Now, maybe someday in the future, that evolution will go into something like like uh, uranium or something like that because right. of the energy com- component. But that hasn't happened. Whatever it is, it will be something that will be scarce and it will have great value for something other than money. Mm. No, that's, that's an excellent overview. And um, the term, so the term actually I prefer for intrinsic value is industrial use value as determined from monetary use. So gold, for instance, say 20% of its market cap is for demand for gold as uh, use in electronics, dentistry, et cetera. Then 80% of its market cap is demand for gold as money. And I think the the example of pecuniary that you cited there and the jars of wheat are very telling because money in this way, it's kind of like a form of stored energy, right? A stored potential energy. Like that's what the, well, the, it's a store one of the original of, monies was food itself, which is just it, basically yes, a store of human energy. Yeah, it's already been expended. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. already in part of what you are looking at. It's already yes. in it. Yes. So the proof of work, right? And this is so yes. essential. Right. The proof right. of work that's uh, imbued or represented by that money is so important because back to your other point, if money is that instrument that we use to acquire goods and services and all goods and services require human energy, doesn't it only make intuitive and obvious sense that the money itself should also require energy to produce? Otherwise, someone could just, if you can produce the money for free and use it to acquire things that are costly, then you have this asymmetric relationship that you can just, you know, quote unquote, print money and steal from the providers of goods and services. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the system we live under today. Yes. That's precisely what we're talking about when we speak of the Federal Reserve System and all the other central banks of the world. Yes. And so back to like this notion of maybe a relationship between money and truth, it's that money that has the greatest integrity or the greatest fidelity to you know, human time and energy, the proof of work in it, which is that the money is what it says it is, right? As you were talking about the, the sure. private mentor of the dollar, right? When he certified this thing had one ounce of gold in it, well, he was telling the truth. So that instrument became favored on the free market as money. And I guess the one point of of possible disagreement between us would be just on Bitcoin specifically. I know that Bitcoin doesn't serve any industrial use, but it does have proof of work built into it. So we actually, you have to expend energy to create Bitcoin. And so I do think that it could serve the role of good money. And my thinking there is, is looking at the properties of gold itself. You mentioned a few of them, though I usually narrow it down to divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, and scarcity. 
I think gold was basically the best tool for the job historically. It, it's satisfying those five properties that, that people seek in money. And Bitcoin does that job even better. Um, but it does, and this gets, this is like Mises regression theorem, right? Where he says money has to start as some commodity and have an industrial use before it can become money. Bitcoin does violate that in a way. So it's, a, it's I guess, an interesting outstanding debate. But in my mind, people are ultimately going to seek out those properties. And I don't see it, any technology that better satisfies those those desired properties of money other than Bitcoin. Well, I certainly agree with you. There's a I don't want to get into a debate on, as to Bitcoin's merits because I, I'm a Bitcoin fan myself. Yeah. I uh, I have some. I don't have a lot. Mm-hmm. But I look at it mostly as a speculative uh-huh. investment that uh, is probably going to go up in value. I don't know whether it'll be around a thousand years from now or yeah. anything like that, like gold probably will be. But yeah. uh, also, uh, you're right. It takes hum- It takes effort. It takes energy to produce it. But it's lacking another element of good money, and that is its indestructibility. Yeah. Uh, if the power goes out, it's gone. Yeah. And of course, people will say, well, that's true of American dollars right now. The power goes out, the banks close down. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. That's one of the problems with the American system yeah. right now. Yeah. It's one of the weaknesses. So Bitcoin adopts that weakness and says, well, it's got to be okay because, see, the dollar's got the same weakness. And look how well the dollar did. Right. And of course, the dollar is going to collapse, as we know. Yes. No, I, th- I think it's a fair point. You know, there's definitely strengths and weaknesses to each technology, and gold certainly has the longest track record. Um, it's you know, not- there are people out there today, I've gotten quite involved with some of them, who claim that they are onto a technology where you can extract gold from almost anything. They say, and I, it's pretty convincing what they how they demonstrate that, is that gold is one of the most prevalent um, minerals in the, in the earth. It's everywhere, except that we don't measure it because it's what they call monatomic. It has to, it's the gold that exists in such great quantity is single atoms, uh-huh. and they're not bound together. And I've forgotten the number, but the gold that we are used to holding in our hand and making jewelry out of is not monatomic, it's multiatomic, and they formed into molecules, uh-huh. or clusters, I guess is the word uh-huh. they use. And now all of a sudden it becomes visible and becomes testable and you can weigh it and use it. But in the monatomic form, it's, you don't even see it. It doesn't show yeah. up. So their technology is how do you get those, those atoms of um, uh-huh. gold to be, so to speak, to join together. And they say they're hot on it. They're on, on the trail of it. And some of them even say, well, we got the secret, but we're not telling anybody. Yeah. I don't know. But the reason I mention it is because if, if the day should come that right. somebody will figure out how to to create gold without mining it, mm-hmm. and they can just extract it out of the seawater, for example, like they claim, uh, then all of a sudden gold will no longer be a, a suitable basis for money because it'll yeah. be too easy to get. Right. Well, that's an excellent point. And I, I guess the subtlety here is, and a good thing really, we don't have to choose the winner, right? You don't have to put all your eggs in one basket necessarily. No. You no. can hold hold some gold, hold some Bitcoin dollars, if you believe in dollars, I suppose. Um, but they all have, there's trade-offs, right? And this is the nature of, of economics. Yeah. Electricity mm-hmm. might be a weak point of Bitcoin, but as you just said, gold could also get disrupted by some innovation. Could be, theoretically. It, yeah. Theoretically. So then it, if that happens, there will be something else. Yes. Oh, there's got to be something else 
Yes. I can't imagine. Take a hypothetical situation. If if technology advances to the point where it would be possible to produce anything that exists on our planet in an easy way, simply by adjusting frequencies or something like that, yes. then we would be in a hard spot. Uh, and it would have to be something, I suppose, that grows, mm -hmm. like timber, tree or something. Right. Um, but if technology could reproduce it, it would eventually become unuseful as as a monetary base. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting uh, thing to ponder. But uh, yeah. again, I guess the we should just spread our bets and um, constantly pay attention to innovation. Um, I do want to ask you something here. So there's the printing of money. Right there seems to be this common misconception that the printing of money somehow creates more wealth, and this is a very simplistic um, thing to debunk. Yet it still is a very popular misconception. And so, and I'm going to cite something here in your book, but like when we're looking at the prices of goods and labor or goods and services expressed, let's say in something like gold, which we would call true money, versus something like fiat, which would be a lawful money. We see that the, and you, you go through this history in your book, that the only real changes in price occur through advances in technology, right? As technology becomes better, productivity improves, and real prices go down. But obviously, in a, a regime where we're printing money, we're accustomed to prices going up over time. This is something that's been normalized. And so, this is from page 144 in your book. You wrote that with gold as the monetary base... We would expect that improvements in manufacturing technology would gradually reduce the cost of production, causing not stability, but a downward movement of all prices. That downward pressure, however, is partially offset by an increase in the cost of the more sophisticated tools that are required. Furthermore, similar technological efficiencies are being applied in the field of mining, so everything tends to balance out. History has shown that changes in this natural equilibrium are minimal and occur only gradually over a long period of time. For example, in 1913, the year the Federal Reserve was enacted into law, the average annual wage in America was $633. The exchange value of gold that year was $20.67. That means that the average worker earned the equivalent of 30.6 ounces of gold per year. In 1990, the average annual wage had risen to $20,468. That is a whopping increase of 3,233%, an average rise of 42% per year for 77 years. But the exchange value of gold in 1990 had also risen. It was $386.90 per ounce. So the average worker, therefore, was earning the equivalent of 52.9 ounces of gold per year. That is an increase of only 73%, a rise of less than 1% per year over that same period. It is obvious that the dramatic increase in the size of the paycheck was meaningless to the average American. The reality has been a small but steady increase in purchasing power, about 1% per year, that has resulted from the gradual improvement in technology. This and only this has improved the standard of living and brought down real prices, as revealed by the relative value of gold. So my question is this, this, it's such a pernicious problem because people want 
their wages to go up. They want the value of their portfolios to go up. They want to see nominal values increase. It has like kind of what I call this cognitive optical illusion. You think you're getting richer, right? If you have number of dollars go up in your account, even if purchasing power of dollar go down. So is has this been the the primary way that the public has been misled into believing that the expansion of the money supply is in some way beneficial? And if so, what can we do to wake people up from this this cognitive optical illusion? Well, I think it is one of the two reasons. One is because it feels good. Oh, yeah. Uh, my, gee, I got, a, I got a 5% increase in pay, Myrtle. Let's go out and have dinner and celebrate. Well, yeah. So it, it's... It feels good. It's, right. It seems sensory. It appeals to our senses. We get more money going in the bank account. And the other part is that the general public is ignorant or prefers to be not mindful of the fact that inflation at the same time is eating away the purchasing power. So right. the, the, he didn't really get an increase in wage at all in terms of standard of living. But it feels good to go out and say, we did. We got a great... It's better to receive a 5% increase in your pay when the economy is eating away 5% of your money, it's better than not to get that increase in pay, of course, mm-hmm. because it's better to stay even than to lose ground. But I think the two reasons, people either do not understand this relationship that we're discussing, or they choose not to think about it because it's unpleasant, mm-hmm. and they don't think there's anything they can do about it. So they choose to remain willfully ignorant of mm-hmm. the problem and uh, go about their daily lives uh, blissfully ignorant and and not 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 to stretch themselves with these unpleasant thoughts yeah. because that leads to the to the conclusion that maybe I better do something about it yeah. and that's troublesome to people that are being taught in the school systems as I was that you don't have to do anything you just depend on your good old government they'll take care of you right so just if you got a problem with the money supply write to your congressman yeah no it's a tricky problem and i wonder if you have any simplistic analogies that you've used to convey this to people, uh, one that I've I've heard is like, if we could decrease, you know, the actual size of an inch, for instance, well, you could increase the square footage on your house, right, by by decree, mm-hmm. effectively, mm-hmm. but the actual size of your house is unchanged, and that's sort of what we're doing when we debase money, right? We're just saying, oh, we nominally exactly have more money, yeah. but we haven't exactly created any wealth. So are, are yeah. there certain ways or approaches you've taken to delivering this insight to people in a simplistic way? Well, I think that is the simplistic way. You just say, you measure everything with the yardstick. Uh-huh. Okay, you issue the yardstick. And uh, you say, gee, my, uh, I want to buy, a, let's see, some lumber. I want to buy a, a piece of two by four that's uh, 12 feet long. Okay, that's a two by four. We've got a measurement there. We've got 12 feet long. And the price on that, you know, used to be $3, let's say. And now it's $6. But it's still it's still the same piece of lumber. Well, so what happened? Well, the trouble is that the dollar also is a yardstick. Well, and it shrunk. Well, now, this lumber didn't shrink because that took human energy to produce. Uh-huh. But the dollar was made up out of thin air, out of the, out of some calculations by uh, politicians and bankers. And so now the yardstick of money that we're going out there to measure that piece of wood is smaller. It's just, it's instead of three feet, it's a foot and a half. Uh-huh. Now look, this 
yardstick doesn't look as big as it was. It takes more of them now to buy that piece of um, lumber. But it's the same analogy. It's, if, you, if the unit of measurement that you use to determine value, if the unit of measure itself changes, then it's useless. It becomes a scam. Yeah. It's like somebody, like the butcher putting his finger on the scale yeah. to make the, the meat weigh more. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I think these these analogies are hopefully useful to people um, that get mystified by money and, and why printing money is not, not good. It's good to understand. Well, another, another analogy just yeah. occurred to me. My wife is always talking about the fact that size seven dress, now they call it size three. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, making you feel better about your dress size. Make you feel better about yeah. it, yeah. Oh, I'm not getting fat anymore. I used to wear a seven. Now I'm down to a three, honey. Look at this. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. It's, we, we need we need simple analogies because people get mystified by printing money. Um, so I think standards of measurement is definitely a useful one. Um, I want to ask you another question here. So this is on page 146 in your book, and you're talking about, like we mentioned, portability of money being a useful property. Uh, also, concealability was pretty important, right? People needed to be able to conceal their wealth and move it around so they you know, obviously wouldn't get robbed. And um, coinage, the standardization of coinage too, well, coinage was, coins were concealable, but they were also standardized that sort of uh, helped mm -hmm. lubricate uh, the wheels of trade. And so on, I'll read a quick excerpt here. This is from page 146 in your book. You wrote that, as the concept of money was slowly developing in the mind of ancient man, it became obvious that one of the advantages of using gold or silver as the medium of exchange was that because of their rarity as compared to copper or iron, great value could be represented by small size. Tiny ingots could be carried in a pouch or fastened to a belt for ease of transportation. And of course, they could be more readily hidden for safekeeping. Goldsmiths then began to fashion them into round disc and and to put their stamps on them to attest to purity and weight. In this way, the world's first coins began to make their appearance. It is believed that the first precious metal coins were minted by the Lydians in Asia Minor, which is now northwest Turkey, in about 600 BC. The Chinese used gold cubes as early as 2100 BC, but it wasn't until the kings stepped into the picture that true coinage became a reality. It was only when the state certified the tiny disc that they became widely accepted. And it is to the Greeks more than anyone that we owe this development. So I'm just curious here, and I know I, I don't want to get into a debate either, but I'm just curious your thoughts about if we look at something like Bitcoin that is a non-corporeal money, it's totally weightless. So any value it has it's almost by definition highly concealable, right? It's just information. And then also because it's just information, it's very portable. And so this is two domains where I think it's, it's a very useful money, right? For people that are maybe trying to flee an oppressive yeah. regime, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, would you expect free, like, I, would you expect free market actors to favor these properties of, of a digital money in certain circumstances? And could you see it, I guess, operating side by side with something like gold? I would like to see it. Yes. First of all, I can visualize that. 
And secondly, I would like to see it operating side by side with gold okay. because that's the only way we'll have to judge which is the best. Mm. Let them operate side by side, see how they perform. Yeah. I don't think any of us are smart enough to predict all these these multifaceted forces interacting with each other. Right. Who knows what the technology, what the political environment is, what the culture will change, opinions will change, uh, economic scarcity will change, people will be starving and desperate. What kind of a system are they going to be living under? Are they free to make choices or are they all going to be enslaved? All these issues, let them exist. In mm. fact, I, I'm a strong opponent of the uh, the gold standard for that reason. At first, I thought it was a great idea. Like, I think gold or silver should be standard money. But then I got to realizing, well, what I think is not important. Mm. What do you think and everybody else? Mm. Why should I impose my will on other people if they think something else is better? Mm. Why should I force them to accept the thing that I think is better? Mm. If I really believe in freedom of choice, I have to give it to others as well. Mm. So then it's finally dawned on me that, well, why just back away and not force anybody to take anything? Let them choose. Let the free market act on this. Just like you can choose what kind of a car you want to drive right. or what kind of a what kind of um, piano you want to buy. I guess I'm into pianos today or something. <laughs> and cars. Anyway, yeah, let the free market decide. I think that is the solution. So the idea of, of state-sponsored money is a big mistake in my view. I think the state's role is perhaps to certify that certain coins or certain bullion pieces are what they say because now we're in a different realm. It's not just that they're gold or silver. It's that they're a contract. Mm -hmm. They right. claim that this is what they are, and that's a contract. They claim to deliver one ounce of 0.999 gold if, if you accept it. That's the contract. Yeah. So if we falsify our contract or don't live up to it, just like breaking any other contract, and that's where the government steps in because now we're stealing from other people. Uh -huh. And that is where government should have a voice in protecting uh -huh. us from theft of our property, but not to force us to accept any particular kind of money. Right. Yeah, that's quite the, the paradox, isn't it? That we want government to protect yeah. our property, but government is monopolizing money to violate our property. That's uh, what always happens with government. Yes. We want government to protect our houses and our our uh, any, our property, anything we yes. have. And the first thing you know, they're telling us what we can pay for it, how we can use it, and yes. whether we can even own it. Yes. yes. So we, we hire we hire a, a patrolman to patrol the neighborhood against crooks, and the first thing you know, the patrolman is telling us what school we have to send our kids to and what he has to learn in school and, and what we have to pay our employees and all the rest. The guy we hired becomes our master. Yes. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things, such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution.
Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Yeah, it's a very, very uh, tenuous relationship without a doubt. And I think that's a great segue actually into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. You have a section titled in your book, Gold is the Enemy of the Welfare State, in which you write... In more modern times, rulers of nations have become more sophisticated in the methods by which they debase currency. Instead of clipping coins, it is done through the banking system. The consequences of that process were summarized in 1966 by Alan Greenspan, who, a few years later, would become chairman of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Greenspan wrote, the abandonment of the gold standard made it possible for the welfare statist to use the banking system as a means to an unlimited expansion of credit. The law of supply and demand is not to be conned. As the supply of money of claims increases relative to the supply of tangible assets in the economy, prices must eventually rise. Thus, the earnings saved by the productive members of the society lose value in terms of goods. When the economy's books are finally balanced, one finds that this loss in value represents the goods purchased by the government for welfare or other purposes. In the absence of the gold standard, there is no way to protect savings from confiscation through inflation. There is no safe store of value. If there were, the government would have to make its holding illegal, as was done in the case of gold. The financial policy of the welfare state requires that there be no way for the owners of wealth to protect themselves. This is the shabby secret of the welfare statist tirades against gold. Deficit spending is simply a scheme for the hidden confiscation of wealth. 
Gold stands in the way of this insidious process. It stands as a protector of property rights. And that's the end of Greenspan's excerpt. And then back to your writing, you conclude, unfortunately, when Greenspan was appointed as chairman of the Federal Reserve System, he became silent on the issue of gold. Once he was seated at the control panel, which holds the levers of power, he served the statist well as they continued to confiscate the people's wealth through the hidden tax of inflation. Even the wisest men can be corrupted by power and wealth. So I, a couple of things I'd like to add here, and then I want to ask you a question. I think it's important that we first acknowledge that the welfare state and the warfare state are two sides of the same coin. So when we're talking about the welfare state, we're also talking about the warfare state. And it's also important to mention, which we just alluded to, that the raison d'etre of government is to defend life, liberty, and property, right? That's the whole reason we have government in the first place. So a state that violates property is an oxymoronic institution. Um, right. And so if holding savings in gold, or really, I guess, any free market money more generally, anything that's outside of, of the central banking system, if that's disruptive to the process of confiscation via inflation, then doesn't this make how one saves or spends their money truly the most effective voting mechanism? Like we have a lot of people thinking that they can vote red or vote blue and fix problems in the world. But it seems to me that money is the primary voting system, like where you save it, how you save it, how you spend it. That's what's actually driving the creative processes of the world. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I had two thoughts during your, your statement there. And don't let me forget to go back to the question of life, liberty, and property, okay? okay. Uh, but let's stick with this last portion, which is... Uh, Already it's slipping away from me as we're talking about... Um, Money hmm. has a voting a, system. A voting like. system, yes, yes, of course. Yes. Um, well, it is a voting system in the market. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it, but that's assuming that the market is a free market. If the market is a, is a command market, which it is now, and people are not free uh -huh. to pay to use money at their discretion. They have to, so many rules and regulations and, uh -huh. and percentages that go back and are deducted and so forth, that the free market is so hampered, it's, it's not a free market at all. It's a complete collectivist market. So what you said is true, but it often fails to function because it's, it's anesthetized. Uh -huh. it, it, cannot, it cannot respond. So it assumes that the government stays out of the market, which is the first step before any of this, any of these golden rules begin to apply, so uh, yeah, I agree with you. But it also I have to agree with with um, Greenspan because of what you just read is a very powerful admission on the part of Greenspan himself of what the problem really is. Mm -hmm. And uh, but um, I remember hearing Congressman Ron Paul talk before a group, and I think he was running for president at the time. And somebody asked him the question about Greenspan's change in position uh, between being a professor of economics and then becoming this chairman of the board of, of the Federal Reserve System. And uh, so Congressman uh, said that he uh, uh, had been at a meeting with, a, uh, with Greenspan and they didn't have a chance to talk privately during the meeting because it was all official business. But after the meeting in the hallway as they were leaving, he, 
he came right up to Greenspan, and he, he asked him, he said, um, Mr. Greenspan, uh, do you still hold the position that you did when you were when you wrote this article and he referred to it? Mm-hmm. And he said, Greenspan stopped and gave him the, the dirtiest look. And he said, after a moment of silence, he said, well, yes, I do. The word but then followed. Mm. Yes, I do. But it is totally unpractical, unpractical in our world. Wow. Yeah. So that's how they get through it. It's beyond his control, unpractical, impractical in our world today. And he's, he is the maker of the world today at this point. He's talking about himself. Right. He's really saying it's impractical for me to, to talk about it as I used to or act on it because wow. I would either be removed from my position or I would probably be assassinated. Wow. He didn't say that part, but we, un- we can put that into it and we understand now right. what his position really is. So wow. now back to the life, liberty, and property. I had the devil of a devil of a time, uh, Robert, uh, writing and rewriting and then rewriting again a uh, an essay which I now have published. Uh, it's called "The Chasm: uh, Collectivism versus Individualism," and I was listing all the principles of individualism, and one of them is, of course. Um, the defense of life, liberty, and property. Uh-huh. That's the only, the, the logic behind that argument was that the state is what we might call the legalized use of force and violence. Uh-huh. So where does the state get its power, okay? State, we'd like to say, gets its power from the consent of the governed. Uh-huh. That means that the state can only have the power that the governed has to give to the state. You can't give the state power that you yourself do not have. So the question now shifts, well, what, under what conditions do we as individuals have the right to use force and violence, even lethal violence, against another human being? That will be the limitation of the state. The state gets their power from us, no place else. Mm-hmm. So now we go into that question. Well, we can use lethal force against another human being in the defense of our life, sure, and our liberty, for sure, somebody's uh-huh. trying to enslave us. But what about property? Can well. we kill somebody because somebody tried to steal our pencil? Well, that's our property. Uh-huh. If they try to steal our our uh, our notebook uh-huh. or our favorite dish, they go up the scale, up, 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 up. You know, if they try to steal our uh, our pie, our um, our if they stole hundred dollars, uh, we have a right to kill them. Uh, and so forth, and it's a it was a bugging question, and I could never get my hand or my brain around. And then finally, one day, I guess it was about fairly recently, maybe ten, twelve years ago, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And that is that there are two kinds of property. And as I saw it in my mind then, and it seems to be holding up all these years, is that one kind is what we might call essential property. That's property that we need for the defense of our life and liberty. Uh-huh. So now property, the essential property, is we can use lethal force because we're defending our life and our liberty. It's uh-huh. not because it's the property, but it's uh-huh. a certain kind of property that we need to defend our life and liberty. And what would that be? Well, you name it, our life and our liberty, 
we got to have a weapon to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. If anybody tries to take our guns away from us, that's our property. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, somebody's going to have a gun that doesn't abide by the law, and they will take either our life and our property and so forth. So, and the tools we need for our livelihood, that's how we support ourselves. We need food, we need water, mm. we need shelter, we need clothing. These things that are essential for our lives or our liberty are essential property, and those are the things we're talking about when we say the word property, and it needs to be defined. The other kind of property I would call uh, convenience property, the Uh, pencil, Uh, the car even, uh, Uh, unless unless it's essential for your livelihood mm. or to get to your work so you can support your family or something like that. There is a gray area to be sure, but that's what we have courts for, is to resolve gray areas. But the principle is clear. If it is essential for the defense of life and liberty, then it applies to that phrase that we all like to use, which is to defend life, liberty, and property. Mm. So that, I just wanted to throw that out because I never found that anyplace else. But it's what I just bubbled up in my own mind. It's got yeah. to be something like that. And if anybody has any objection to it and can find any flaws with it, I would like to know about it because it needs to be refined then. No, well, you know, it reminds me of um, Rothbard wrote about the concept of proportionality. So if someone steals your pencil, for instance, you don't have the right to kill them. Well, you really have, what he asserted at least, was that the thief owes you the pencil back and he owes you one more for the tort. So it was like a two for one kind of thing. And basically the the crime needed to be proportionate to the retribution. But But it wasn't enough to just get the pencil back because then the thief didn't incur any loss, right? There was no disincentive to the attempted theft because they were just... They didn't have a pencil before, they didn't have a pencil after. But if they lose two pencils as a result of trying to steal your one, or they they lose one, right? They lose the one they stole plus one of their own. So when you describe that, it it reminded me of of that principle. Um, Obviously, there's gray area. We need some type of arbiter to to resolve that. But I think in theory, it it sort of makes sense, right? It does make sense. And there's another variation on that, uh, which I seldom run into, and that is the... uh, I'm trying to think of a good name for it, but it's peer pressure, I guess, um, your reputation. Now, if, it, if, if you were convicted in a court of stealing somebody's pencil and that went to court and was provable, uh-huh. it could be published in the newspaper. And all of a sudden, you are known to everybody in the community as a thief of pencils. Uh-huh. Now, that's not too serious, I suppose, because uh-huh. I probably have stolen a pencil or two in, <laughs> of my own along my career. But... Uh, Usually they were from trays with lots of pencils with advertising on them yeah. and so forth. But nevertheless, I took them without asking permission. Yeah. So uh, uh, I don't think that would warrant me being published as a thief, a pencil thief. No. But there are certain areas that it would. And it would seem to me like if you were published and known to be a thief of an automobile, for example, or you stole somebody's, uh, or you 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 were an accountant in a company and. Uh, well, of course, then you would go to prison. But why? If we're stealing money from the company, that's property. Mm. Who's property? And how much? Mm. Steal $10, $20, $50, go mm. to prison? Well, maybe. Shoplifting, is that's one of those gray areas where at what right. point does it become proportional? And I think yeah. I think Rothbard's formula is pretty good. But then some the problem with that is that some group of people have to make the decisions as to what the line is. 
Yes. And they may, your idea of the, of the dividing line would be different than theirs, but that's what happens when you have an arbiter. Exactly. Yeah, it's a um, yeah, br- brutally complicated situation because especially when you get into murder and things like that, it's like obviously the person that was murdered is irreplaceable. There is no proportionality there. How do you... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it hadn't been, you murdered two people. Well, you know, yeah. it's interesting that as far as I can tell, primitive societies have worked this out universally around the world. Uh, there are tribes and there are families within the tribes and uh, especially tribes are considered the more primitive societies as the big family. And if an adjacent tribe um, kills one of your tribe members, it's your duty bound, you're indignant, you're duty bound to take the life of one of their tribe members. That's how wars start, you know. Uh-huh, right. and, but not two lives. One for one is the way the primitive societies work on it. Yeah. But then, of course, the reputation of the tribe is is pretty bummed out too, and um, my my problem with that is that I think probably there are very few tribes in primitive societies that had a good reputation. Uh-huh. They were all suspect, and so there was a lot of yeah. animosity between tribes for that reason. Yeah, and that that reflects the Hammurabi's code, right? That an eye for an eye, and yeah. that leaves the whole eye, world blind. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very tricky problems to sort out. Um, I do want to ask you one last thing from your book here. So we've talked about inflation as being a hidden tax, right? It's it's uh, money printing is basically stealing purchasing power from savers, but it it tricks people into believing that it's a good thing because nominal prices are going up. Um, and I, I've said I've mentioned this a lot and I'm pretty sure you agree based on your writing I try to crystallize all of this by saying that inflation is legal counterfeiting counterfeiting is criminal inflation like there's no economic distinction between expanding the money supply through QE and expanding the money supply through quote unquote counterfeiting right it's the same economic activity there's only a legal distinction between the two yeah the net Uh, effect is the same yeah and so I'll read just a brief excerpt here from your book. Uh, This is from the section titled, Inflation is a Hidden Tax. Fiat money is the means by which governments obtain instant purchasing power without taxation. But where does that purchasing power come from? Since fiat money has nothing of tangible value to offset it, government's fiat purchasing power can be obtained only by subtracting it from somewhere else. It is, in fact, collected from us all through a decline in our purchasing power. It is therefore exactly the same as a tax, but one that is hidden from view, silent in operation, and little understood by the taxpayer. In 1786, Thomas Jefferson provided a clear explanation of this process when he wrote, Everyone through whose hands a bill passed lost on that bill what it lost in value during the time it was in his hands. This was a real tax on him. And in this way, the people of the United States actually contributed those millions of dollars during the war and by a mode of taxation, the most oppressive of all, because the most unequal of all. So is, in your estimation, this legal counterfeiting or inflation, is this the most pernicious socioeconomic problem in the world because it's used 
to steal in broad daylight and and there's so much it seems to me like there's a lot of plausible deniability related to it because what we, we had what six trillion dollars counterfeited in 2020 at least i think it's expanded since then and then the subsequent price inflation that occurred you see headlines like oh it's supply chains causing the inflation or putin causing the inflation the, the state has all this plausible deniability they can say oh no it's not the currency counterfeiting it's not the central bank it's all these other reasons why prices are going up. Um, is this the most pernicious socioeconomic problem we have in the world today? My quick answer would be yes. The second most would be the exchange of money, taking from some and giving to others right. in the name of welfare or some beneficial goal. And that, I put that in second place because... Um, it's more visible. Everybody can see that. Oh yeah, you, you, I'm, I'm being taxed because they're giving it to uh, to bail out Ford Motor Company. Mm -hmm. So that came out of my pocket to get Ford Motor Company back and its its stockholders back in business. I don't like that. Nobody's getting me back in business. So it's visible. But with the inflation process, it's invisible. Mm -hmm. It takes a, a pretty good understanding of the process before you can see that the money is being taken from you. Yeah, it's, um, again, because it's, I guess, not so intuitive, it seems like it's a really big problem because, like, when I look at the war on terror, for instance, the U.S. spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $2.5 trillion over 20 years, and they also printed, I think, in that same time period, like $2.8 trillion dollars. Now, if you did, if you divided that amount by the number of U.S. households, it came out to something like eighty thousand dollars per U.S. household. Had they had to spend that, had they had to pay for the war on terror through explicit taxation, people would have been very resistant, right? Had they received a bill for eighty thousand dollars, said oh, yeah. you need to pay this. Well, they've been held to pay. But because yeah. they can print money, people don't understand what you know. The price inflation yeah. is the tax, and then people are none the wiser, and we get more war, more deception, et cetera. So. Yeah, um, that's it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why uh, my view of banking has changed over the years as I get a deeper and deeper understanding of some of these more subtle aspects that we're talking about. Is that in the beginning I thought, well, these guys were just were just crooks in silk hats, you know, trying to look for a way to to milk the system and get away with it and make it legal, which uh -huh. was true. That's what they were doing, but then. When I see this this long-term process and the hidden process and, and the fact that the public has remained passive throughout it uh -huh. without rebelling, where in the past, previous to the invention of fact, fractional reserve banking and prior to inflation and, and digital currencies and all that stuff, um, in the beginning, it, once, it looked to me like once the taxation level got to somewhere near the 40% of uh -huh. the production, productivity of the people, mm -hmm. there was a revolution. The king was disposed uh -huh. and a new system came in, usually uh, under profits of, uh, we'll get rid of the corruption. Uh -huh. But then of course it brought its own corruption in a new form. And before long it was right back to where it was, if not worse. But nevertheless, there were rebellions, there were tax rebellions uh -huh. in history. But once they got this inflation scheme going, Nobody could see it as a tax. Uh, they didn't understand it, which is why the politicians and the bankers love it so much yeah. because it's sleight of hand, nobody sees it, and it's a crime 
committed in broad daylight. Wonderfully said. Uh, Mr. Griffin, I think I've kept you long enough. Um, well, I want to... One of my favorite topics, uh, Robert. <laughs> well, we thank could talk you. For, for days on this, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, thank you for your time, and then thank you for your unparalleled contributions to this discussion. Uh, well, I, do, I do think this is the most important book on the nature of central banking, and I've recommended yeah. it highly. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Uh, do you have any parting words? And if not, could you please let my audience know where they can find you on the internet? Well, yes. Uh, I don't. I think my poignant words. I'm out of those already. I hope. <laughs> I hope I've already spoken those. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see, where you can find me on the internet, I suppose uh, the best place would be to start with, uh, we have several websites. Um, my commercial website is uh, realityzone.com. That's where we have books and recordings and videos and things on this and similar topics. Um, but that's the only place we sell things. The other websites are all, you have nothing to sell but ideas and concepts. Right. And I would start there with redpilluniversity.org. And uh, that will put you in touch with redpillexpo.org. We have a new expo coming up in June of next year. And that's where we bring together some world-crushing world speakers and would probably be talking about some of these issues, plus many more. And um, that's a good start, I would say. I've, I've prepared this book that I talked about before called The Chasm, um, Collectivism Versus Individualism. And if anybody would like a free copy or free download of that, see if I can remember the well, the website to, or the URL to get it. It's um, it'll be chasm c h a s m uh, slash realityzone dot com. I think that'll do it. It's very simple. Yeah. Chasm slash realityzone dot com. We will make sure that is correct and put that in the show notes. Uh, yeah. People that are if it doesn't work, please call me and uh, we'll correct it. All right. <laughs> we'll, we'll make I sure we get that. it. Make sure we get it right. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's about a fifty page document, and the reason I'm plugging it is because I think that a greater understanding of the differences between collectivism and individualism is absolutely necessary to deal with all of the many complex problems that we're facing. Because no. if you keep peeling off the skin, the onions of the, the skins of the onion, you get down. I don't know, somewhere in the middle of that onion, there's a core. And the core is this idea of collectivism versus individualism. People are saying, oh, we got communism, uh, you know, socialism, fascism, Nazism. Then we got capitalism over there. And we got Republicans versus Democrats Mm. and like socialism versus capitalism. All these words, nobody knows what they mean. That's right. And they mean very little, actually, except what the speaker means them to mean at the point at which he makes the statement. Yes. But if you go back to the foundational base of all of these ideas, you find that they all are based on this conflict between the idea of individualism on the one hand versus collectivism on the other, and communism, socialism, fascism, Nazism, all those are variants of collectivism. They're yes. the same. It was an yeah. amazing discovery for me to make that that the communism and fascism were the same, yes. and Nazism were the same, and so forth. So it's, if we don't understand that, then we're probably not going to be able to find our way through the weeds and get to a real honest solution. So I urge everybody at the, on a free download on that. That's where you find a little discussion on this issue 
about life, liberty, and property, for example, be in there too, and other things. So that's it. That's enough. And uh, thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. It has been my honor. Thank you, sir, for doing this. All right. Thank you. Good luck.